0: Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City based podcast where we practice intellectual self defense. In 2019, more than 5 billion hours of pornography were watched on Pornhub alone. For the very few uninitiated out there, Pornhub is the most popular pornography website, but it is one of millions. But so just imagine what the total could be. But just for Pornhub, that is 500 million years worth of hours dedicated to just 12 months of exploiting women and girls, grooming children, and shattering lives all across the globe. Now, my guest this week, Joshua Shea, will speak in-depth and personally about certain aspects of this pandemic that is hiding in plain sight. But before we get to Josh, I want to hit on a few other crucial angles because pornography must be approached from many different directions. It strikes our, the, at the heart of our humanity in so many ways. And this topic, in my eyes, fits very neatly into the post-woke mission, because part of regularly practicing intellectual self-defense is taking a closer look at what so many, perhaps even you, in our culture consider to be acceptable and or inevitable. If you feel that way about porn, let me begin with a quote from Mary Ann Layden. She is the director of the Sexual Trauma and Psychopathology Program Center for Cognitive Therapy. Mary Ann says, pornography is a potent teacher of both beliefs and behaviors, and in fact, provides the ideal conditions for learning. It can teach not only specific sexual behaviors, but general attitudes toward women and children, what relationships are like, and the nature of sexuality. Marianne Layden continues, We learn better when aroused. If something activates our sympathetic nervous system, we are more prepared to remember the information received at that point. The arousal may come from excitement, joy, fear, disgust, or sexual tension. We tend to remember any experience we have in those aroused states, and learning is better if it is reinforced. Behavior that is rewarded is likely to be repeated, while behavior that is punished is less likely to be repeated. Sexual arousal and orgasm are extremely rewarding experiences." Close quote. Now, what does this mean for our society? For this, I will turn to the anti-porn scholar and activist Gail Dines, who explains that the porn industry has hijacked the sexuality of an entire culture and is laying waste to a whole generation of boys. And when you lay waste to a generation of boys, you lay waste to a generation of girls. You see, porn is so often viewed as cool, hip, edgy, and most of all, normal. The woke crowd even promotes it as empowering to women. In reality, pornography is often filmed rape. According to the website Fight the New Drug, the new drug being pornography, porn can sometimes be the recorded evidence of sex trafficking and it directly fuels the demand for exploitation and more sex trafficking porn fuels the global sex trade by driving demand into the mainstream of society but porn consumers rarely if ever can distinguish between trafficked individuals and porn performers so they are inadvertently being kind there, they are at some level reinforcing the demand for exploitation through their clicks and downloads. In many cases, as I said, they are not even realizing it. And part of why they don't realize it is that pornography is addictive, which brings me to this week's guest. Joshua Shea is a former pornography addict turned expert on a mission to get the world talking about pornography addiction and the potential ramifications of being a porn addict. He has given a TED Talk and written several books on the topic. I will be back with Josh right after this short break. We're back with Joshua Shea, a former pornography addict turned expert on a mission. Joshua, thanks for making time to share your knowledge and welcome to Woke.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on and giving me a chance to talk about some of this stuff because so many people in this world uh, are still scared to death to say the uh, scary P word. Absolutely.
0: So let's get right to it. Uh, I began... episode episode with a brief overview of sort of a sociological impact of porn but i want to ask you from a psycho-emotional perspective what's wrong with looking at pornography and and why do so many people view it as normal and even acceptable
1: okay so you know i'm a uh my parents, my grandparents, very conservative people like their generations were. You go and you look at uh, a woman in a bikini from 1955 and you might see one inch of skin around her stomach. They were raised, uh, a lot of them, you know, my parents, uh, including and the people I know around here were raised in the Catholic Church and they are very, very, uh, I don't want to say anti-sex, but sex is a taboo thing we don't talk about. Um And I was kind of raised that way. And I look at something like uh, if there was the sexy cheerleader, if there was the super buff football player back when I was in high school, and if they had a picture of them taken together at the beach, people would have passed that around like it was money to look at. Nowadays, you've got social media. And every kid that's 15, 16, or 17, it's almost expected for them to have these half-naked pictures of themselves on social media. Yeah. So when they turn 18 or 19, it's not that big a leap to go into some of these websites where you can even make your own pornography and sell it. That's becoming a huge thing. But what uh, what's happening in this world is that it's a tale of two generations. There's kind of everybody above 40 who has no idea what it, the internet has done to the youngest generation and the youngest generation is kind of flying under the radar. Um, there are so many issues with pornography, even beyond addiction. For instance, now that we have high speed internet, think about you know, you give you give a 12-year-old kid an iPhone. Well, an iPhone is a great mapping system, an iPhone you can play games on, you can, you know, talk to your parents through a few different ways, but it's also the greatest porn computer that's ever been invented. Yeah. And my generation was not given any uh direction on how to deal with porn with our kids. We're not as strict and we're not as conservative as my parents' generation, but we're not nearly as liberal as my kids' generation. And I kind of look at this and think my parents' generation were way too strict when it came to sexuality. And there's been such a sea change with high-speed internet that we now have a generation that is just, you know, run off the side of the boat and cannonballed right into the ocean. And they're now swimming with sharks in this world of pornography that we don't know what's going to happen and we're just starting to see now after 15 20 years of high speed internet it's not just you know the the addiction we have higher than ever rates of erectile dysfunction it's ridiculous back when i was 20 years old the uh, addiction the erectile dysfunction rates among guys my age were around 3% now it's pushing 20% and it's the pornography absolutely You talk about women and there's a lot going on right now studying uh, younger women and how they don't want to have intercourse with young men who are virgins because most of them know that these guys have grown up in a world of online pornography and even the most vanilla straight ahead pornography, not even any weird stuff, even the most straight ahead stuff, you still see a giant inequity between the way men and women are treated and it's like a, just, it's
0: a dysfunctional version of sex education ab- for the younger generation
1: and that's what's happening out there you know if a kid between 12 and 18 only sees you know two videos a day which is way less than they're seeing on average you're still talking about over 2000 you know instances of pornography by the time that they're 18 years old and maybe trying to function like a normal guy. And you and I, and those of us listening who have had normal, healthy sexual relationships along the way, we understand that pornography is fiction. We know it's not a documentary or even a reality show, but how is a 13-year-old boy who gets bullied at school or feels ostracized by friends or or can't find his his or her place in the world you know they escape to a world of pornography and they feel good about themselves well even if it doesn't rise to the level of addiction they do that 30 minutes a day 5 days a week for 5 6 years You know, that's thousands of hours that this hits you. Even if you're not an addict, it's not like you're going to be absolutely okay and normal and have the kind of uh, outlook on healthy sexuality that most people have. And that's why I always make it known in the beginning of interviews or if I'm at a college or or a church or a library giving a presentation – I always make it known very early on that I am not necessarily anti-pornography because I think that would be a waste of energy. What I am is pro-healthy sexuality. That's what we need in this world because sex is not a bad thing. Sex shouldn't be a scary thing. You and I are only here because our parents had sex one night, but we need to learn more about it and we need to learn more in a 21st century way uh, and, and, and how we access it—a
0: functional, equitable way. I, I agree. Like, I have written a lot of articles in my life, not recently, but in the past, that could be categorized as anti-porn. And I learned through that process that that's not the that's not the doorway in the for people to to get people to explore their pornography, their relationship with pornography. We need to. Speak about how it's personally affecting them or their immediate family, i.e., their kids, because it's very hard to come in from like a moral or socio-sociological perspective. And I I think your approach is probably the one that's going to—I'm sure it already is making an impact because people are being um, hurt and affected by this. And and to use this as a segue, uh, I'm curious to hear what are what what are the what's the current state of pornography, pornography addiction? How much of a role did the lockdowns play? Like, What kind of statistics can you share to sort of give listeners perspective of how big this situation is?
1: Yeah, it was very bad before the pandemic. And um, obviously we don't have much studying of it afterward, but uh, one of the books that I actually wrote was, uh, I was a journalist for many, many years before I got into uh, this field of work and i was just kind of sitting around during the pandemic and wanted to uh work on the project so i actually saw an article that talked about how europe was exploding um with pornography use online and i did some research and basically um you know without going into all the details i think that in the first three months of the pandemic uh really meaning like the first three months of 2020 uh, the online pornography industry probably grew what would have taken five or six years without it. Wow! And this, and I'll tell you, the scariest thing is not how many people started to watch porn because it it did increase ridiculously. You look at uh, a website like Pornhub, their year to year traffic depending on where you were in the world in the early pandemic went up anywhere from 40 to 60% day to day from the year before. Um, and now we're still seeing 15 to 20% growth from the previous year. So it's huge in a way that it never had been. But even more than this, what I think the true legacy of Of the pandemic will be on the pornography addiction world is that this is when the do-it-yourself pornography exploded. Now before the pandemic, and I'm going to mention one site that a lot of people know, so I don't think I'm teaching anybody anything. But there's a website called OnlyFans, which is kind of like Etsy meets Facebook for pornography. You know, you can you can go on there and sell pictures and videos of yourself that are G-rated all the way up to triple X-rated. And there was, before the pandemic started, uh, January 1st, 2020, there were roughly 300,000 people worldwide who were making pornography of themselves and selling it on this website. Uh, Not too many months ago, the CEO gave an interview uh, somewhere and said that they had over 2 million content creators. So, in a course of two years, we went from 300,000 people making porn on this site to 2 million people making porn on this site. And that's only one site. That doesn't mention the hundreds of cam sites or other sites that are similar to OnlyFans. So, there are millions and millions of people who are now making pornography to sell that weren't doing it before the pandemic. And so I wrote this book looking at this and some of the other issues around the pandemic. And I'll tell you what scared me, Mickey, was that I interviewed them. I interviewed a lot of these uh, men and women who got onto OnlyFans right at the beginning of the pandemic, and I interviewed people who had already been doing it. The people who had already been doing it, when I interviewed them three months later at the end of putting my book together, they were able to talk about how the clientele had changed during the pandemic and and things like that, but they hadn't changed. They were just doing it for the money. They had already built this life for themselves. What scared me the most were the 18, 19, 20-year-old guys and girls who got into it because Their waitress job was put away or their retail job was put on the shelf because these are who works in retail, who works in service industries, it's usually younger, good looking, conversational type people. So they found this thing. But unfortunately, when I interviewed this type of person at first, they were saying, like, yeah, I, I won't get my tips as a bartender, or I can't, you know, I can't work as a waitress. And I need to make money, so I'm going to do this. Once this is over, I'm going right back to my life. Well, you talk to them three months later, and they're like, no, I'm not going back to my life. And is it, well, the money's so good? Well, the money calmed down after after a few weeks once I was no longer new, but I love doing this. You know i love wow. this because i'm getting so much attention you know i can't get a i can't get a girl to want to date me in real life and now i've got twenty five women who want to talk to me every day or on the female end it's even worse i talked to someone were like you know i've had five men propose to me this month and guys don't look at me in real life and i love this this makes me feel special this makes me feel pretty and what i heard from a lot of these Uh, young men and women, when I interviewed them three months later, is that OnlyFans was not an outlet for them to make money exclusively. It became a place for them to get some self-validation. And that self-validation came in the excitement of dopamine hits, oxytocin hits, serotonin hits. And basically what they were describing was the same process that I went through when I was a porn addict for 24 years. These people are making pornography to get their little highs to feel better. And I ultimately, you know, when you look at it, how different is pornography production from pornography consumption if everybody's going after the same brain chemicals? Wow. I think that's, I think it's the same coin. I think it's two different sides of a coin and I can picture some of these, you know, guys and girls who are in their twenties still doing this in 20 years making a fraction of what they're making now, but it's not about the money. It's about the high. It's about the And that's what I think, that's what I really think that the long-term legacy of the pandemic and pornography will be. It's not going to be about watching it. It's going to be about all the people who got hooked on making it. So so that generation that you're
0: talking about was literally raised searching for these dopamine hits on social media. And then when they come up sexual age, and this, this unique situation comes where they can't work at a traditional job, all the elements line up for them to jump into something like OnlyFans and become, I never, I never thought until you just said it now, I didn't never thought of the, of the Uh, that end of OnlyFans as being addicted also. But when the way you just described it so succinctly, of course there is. It's this, you're still chasing the same high. And as you said, it could be 20 years from now and they might be still chasing a version of that same high. And that is mind-blowing to ponder. And it'll be a legacy of the lockdowns that perhaps um, will get lost in the shuffle of all the other legacies. But it's one that will impact um, a major chunk of our population, either as producers or consumers. So, what what I'm curious about here is, you've laid out this overview of of the scope of this issue, and the 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 most vulnerable being those kids, the twelve year olds with that pornography machine in their pocket what what when if a parent comes to you uh just anyone who's concerned about kids and wants to know what can we realistically do to keep the younger generation from um watching these extreme videos and getting skewed perceptions of what sex is and what sexuality is, and, and living this sort of digital in- intimacy instead of face-to-face intimacy, what kind of steps can people take to pr- to protect the next generation from what happened to this previous generation? And I do understand what you said. There's no, it's not a, necessarily a blame on the parents because those parents had no context you know if if you grew up occasionally renting a a vhs video how can you understand the scope of what your 13 year old might be looking at on a break at school with their friends because you had you you never did it and you probably imagine your kid wouldn't do it either as it becomes more known what can we do to just to to stop this issue in, in its tracks because we don't need any more ensuing generations learning about sexuality from pornhub
1: right exactly and, and there are a few things um first when you look at the older kids at 16 or 17 you do have to worry about them moving into the only fans kind of world and maybe that's perfectly fine maybe that's a maybe that's a, a, a logical and, and perfectly healthy way to make money for some people but the thing is, we don't have long-term study about this. What is it going to mean? And I'm not not—I'm not talking about when you're 50, some naked pictures of you come out, because I don't think that's going to be a big deal in 20 or 30 years, yeah. I think. But we don't know what the mental uh, effect is, because we've never seen this in the world. So what I think, you know, one of the things I think that pe- parents have to recognize is when it comes to the older kids, at least, is that they're not living in the world we lived in. You know, like I said, they're half naked on uh, Instagram now where we never would have thought about doing that when we were young. And for somebody who is an outgoing, good-looking person growing up in this world, what how big of a difference is it from, you know, being in your tiny bikini and getting a picture taken to taking off the top of that bikini and getting paid $20 for each person who wants to look at it? Well, it's $20 per person. And if 50 people want to look at it, you made a thousand dollars taking your bikini top off wow. when you don't have the taboos and the, the uh, you know, moral black cloud of, you know, what pornography was to previous generations. That makes it more uh, interesting, I think for older ones. And I, but I think older ones can understand. We don't know what this is going to do to you. Uh, I think they can appreciate that when it comes to the younger kids when I when I've given presentations or or given speeches, I almost always get a parent who asks or comes up to me and says, "Well, you know, we've got we've got filters on our kids' phones and we've got filters on their their laptops and their tablets and you know, I have to tell them, that's wonderful. There are now just under 5 billion phones or smartphones in the world. You've oh. locked down one of them. Great job. Thank you for battling pornography for all of us." You know, it's, it's not a matter of if your child is going to see pornography. It's a matter of when. And I think that you have to look at the pornography discussion or, or more likely discussions that have to happen between a parent and their child, not as sex ed. It's not the birds and the bees speech. It's the stay away from cigarette speech, stay away Mm. from alcohol speech. When you're old enough and live on your own, you can make your own decisions. But here, while you're young, living in our house, we don't look at that stuff. And... You say, how do you get kids to you know, internalize that they don't want to do this stuff or they shouldn't do this stuff? Well, I just say back, how do, you, how do you get your kids to learn to cross the street? How do you get them to hold a fork? How do you get them to do anything? You teach, You teach them. And we can't have a generation of another generation of parents who are afraid to teach their children about pornography because, unfortunately, that's just where we are now in society. You know, my my dad tells stories about hiding under his desk in the 1950s for air raid drills. And thankfully, we don't have to do that in school anymore. But we now have to deal with this. The world changes. And if you tell your five year old kid, hey, I just want you to know that uh, you can't let anybody, you know, you don't ever look under anybody's bathing suit or their underwear, and you don't let anybody look under your bathing suit or underwear, and you don't ever take any pictures of anybody in their underwear or without their clothes on, and you don't let anybody do that to you, and if anybody tries, you come and let me know, okay? And then you let it go. And maybe in six months or a year, you teach something else. Oh, well, you know what? You may, some of your friends at school, if they have a phone or if you're over their house, you may see some naked people on their computer and you may not understand what those naked people are doing. Um, Just come tell me if you see that so we can talk about it. And if you raise your kid to not have the taboo, if you raise your kid to not all of a sudden, you know, freak out and run away from pornography, like so many parents who probably are looking at it themselves, run away from that discussion. Um, that's going to make the biggest change in the world. Education is going to make the change in the world. That's what changes the world for better. Is education is knowledge, and that's what we need in this area. And we just need, you know, while I'm not thrilled with how liberal this youngest generation of of Ah, uh, kids are with sexuality. I'm hoping when they become parents, maybe it's not as taboo to talk to their kids about it. Um, when I do, when I do speeches and when I do uh, online uh, class discussions in colleges, which I do a lot of, uh, it's amazing how kids uh, kids between eighteen and thirty recognize there's a problem with porn want Mm -hmm. to know more about it, want to do something about it. But again, that older generation has no idea that there's this porn problem. And if they did, they don't want to talk about it because they don't want to talk about porn because that's bad. You're supposed to pretend you've never looked at porn. You're supposed to pretend you don't even know what the word masturbate means. You're supposed to pretend that, oh, I didn't know the Internet had that stuff. That's how that generation has been trained to live. And we just need more genuineness. We just need more honesty. We need to grow up and understand that you can talk to your kids about pornography without describing every last thing in the pornography. You and I have been talking 20, 25 minutes now. We haven't talked about an explicit scene yet. Absolutely. and We're not going to because we don't have to. We can be adults talk about pornography and if we're able to talk about pornography we're able to talk about pornography addiction and the negative effects of pornography in the world as adults and that's what we need the world to to move towards
0: that that's a wonderful answer because that that sense of normalizing a conversation that could be uncomfortable like you said it's not normalizing a conversation about um sexual specifics that are inappropriate for children of certain ages you're letting your kids know well the first thing you're doing as an adult whether they're your kids or not it could be aunt or uncle or but just you you yourself are accepting that there is a problem and that pretending that porn doesn't exist or that you don't look at it isn't going to solve it so you have to deal with your own uh self-stigmatizing of it but to let the kids know that they can come to you the same way you'd want them to come to you if one of their friends stole something from the store yeah. or, or offered them a joint or whatever it might be to say, You're not going to get punished. You're going to get praised if you come to me and say, Something happened with my friends and I need to talk about it. Like that, it sounds commonsensical, but as everyone knows, it's very challenging to be that relaxed about taboo topics. And it's very challenging for the kids to feel like they don't want to feel like they're ratting out their friends or maybe, or maybe through their friends, they've already been sort of stigmatized about porn. And it's like, I can't talk about naked bodies to my parents. And, and it seems like we just need more input, like what you've been dedicated to of letting people know, Hey, you, as you just said, you and I've been talking quite some time here about. Porn, but not, not a, a pornographic conversation. And right. it's a hundred percent possible and a thousand percent necessary.
1: And I tell you what, one of the most powerful things then, and my favorite thing to experience when I do my coaching is when I talk to a younger guy or girl, you know, 18 to 23, 18 to 24, uh, when they come to me for help and, I'm sitting there talking to them about their issues, and it dawns on them that I'm not going to judge them on what they've looked at. I'm not going to shame them on what they've looked at. I'm not going to embarrass them about what they've looked at. They can just talk openly and honestly, and it's like a giant weight lifts from their shoulders because they've never been able to talk to their mom or dad. They've never been able to talk to their friends. They, are, they were afraid to talk to other relatives or a doctor because maybe they would talk to their parents. And yeah. one of the first things I say to people when I sit down with them, whether they're 18 or 68, is, listen, I talk about this stuff all day long. If I could, if I could get paid a dollar for every time I say pornography in a day, I wouldn't need to do this anymore. I talk about porn, pornography, masturbation, these issues all day long. They don't really phase me anymore. I know that it's very new for you. I know that it, you feel like it's very shaming. I know that you're embarrassed, but the most you know, the more truthful you can be, the more you can own your behaviors, uh, the better off you're going to be. And they hear this, but I can still see it takes some time for it to click. And when it finally clicks, there is a visible change in the way they hold their body. They just kind of like exhale and recognize, oh, my God, I can talk about this matter-of-factly, and this guy's not going to judge me. Nice. That, that's the most amazing thing to see, because I think it's the first time that a lot of these people have ever been able to talk about this issue that they're ashamed of, that they hide, that's causing problems in their life. And it's sad that they have to find somebody like me to talk to about this and that there's not more people out there who are open and willing Um And that's what I'm trying to do with with changing the world. Like I said, I'm not anti-pornography. It's legal. It's been around. Depictions of sexuality have been around since cave painting times. Um, All I want to do is educate people that this is not like it was when you could only get one magazine a month. You know, this is a very different world now, and we have to treat it like a very different world, and we can't have the same uh, taboos of the past hanging over us. Imagine if we still had the same taboos we had in the 1700s and 1800s. Imagine if we were still trying to drown people because we thought they were witches. I mean, you have to evolve, and you have to address the way the world changes, and we're not doing that now, and that's what I see my mission out there as, is trying to educate, And then those who need help, working with them on a one-on-one level and removing the stigma from their situation. Uh,
0: Yeah. I I mean, I very much admire what you're doing. And like you say, we have to evolve, but getting people to evolve requires some guidance. And that means they need people like you who have been through it, who understand it, who can talk about it like an adult without without judging anyone, and to... Sort of model the behavior in which you want other people to interact. Which which brings me before we wrap up. I want to make sure um, the listeners get to hear about your new book, your contact info. I'm going to put all of that in the show notes. But I'd like you, just in case we don't know where people will hear this, I want you to have a chance to let people know what you do, you know what you write about, how they can contact you, and so on. So please, the floor is yours.
1: Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot. Um, my my newest book, uh, it was released. Uh, On April 1st, 2022 Um, And that is called I am reading this book about Porn addiction for a friend Um, Tongue in cheek, obviously (laughs) Because nobody wants to be caught reading a book About porn addiction Um, So I named it that This is actually the first book I have written That is a self-help book For porn addicts And I geared it towards uh, I've only been on TikTok For about three months And I exploded on TikTok. Within my first month, I had a couple of videos that were over 8 million views. My coaching, I started to get so many people wanting my coaching that I could have coached 24-7 if I wanted. It totally blew up. But one of the things I kept hearing was a lot of people who were in different parts of the world who were like, somebody in India is like, I can't go to my therapist about this because porn is now technically illegal in India and we oh, don't have no the cow. same protections for people. So I can't go talk about this, but they can still buy a book through Amazon. And I have this book designed to basically be like my first session that I have with people. I usually offer a free first session so people can see if we click, so they can we can understand where they are as far as their issues go. And I but I know a lot of people are too scared to do that with me, or they're just in a place that they can't do that with me, or they they uh, say to themselves, you know, I could go one free one, but I don't have the money afterwards, so why bother? This book is designed to just get them into it. It discusses the eleven different symptoms. I give stories of seven or eight of my clients, different ages, different places in the world that they're from. So hopefully, people see themselves. I give a list of about seven different activities that you can begin in early recovery to try to get back on the right track. And then I also have a handful of assessments and uh, quizzes to take so you can personalize your experience to the book and see where you fall in certain categories like the adverse childhood experiences uh, Assessment, which is one that a lot of a lot of professionals use. So that book, I'm trying to kind of be all encompassing, uh, really quick hit about learning where you are right now. That's that's available uh, through Amazon. Like I said, it's called. I'm reading this book about porn addiction for a friend. I have written other books in the past. I did a, my first one was a uh, autobiography. I also did that one I mentioned earlier about the pandemic. That's more of a journalistic look at what was happening. And then my other book, which has been the biggest seller, uh, is called He's a Porn Addict, Now What? And that one I wrote for the partners of porn addicts, Uh, Mm. traditionally women, although anybody could read the book, uh, traditionally women who are trying to make sense out of what happened because so many partners of porn addicts don't understand addiction and don't understand how pornography addiction is actually not a rejection of them. It's not because they're not pretty enough. It's not because they're not bad in bed or it's, it's you know, it's not because uh, they are bad in bed or because they're not giving enough attention. Addiction is a very different thing than intimacy. Sure. Yeah. So that book explains that. And also, uh, so those are all available on Amazon um, through my website, which is P Addict Recovery. I have a resources page where the the links to that book are, but there's also links to the places like rehabs that I've been to, uh, links to 12 Steps, uh, links to uh, online forums where you can go. There are so many ways to begin your recovery journey Um, that saying you can't do it because you don't like 12-step groups or you don't like therapy or or whatever it is, there are so many other ways to get better. I have the resources on there. I also write an article or two every week about either recovery or my time when I was an addict. And I do have all of the information about my coaching on that website too in case anybody wants to uh, learn about it. And again, that's the letter P uh, as in porn or as in uh, post-betrayal syndrome um paddictrecovery.com
0: that that all sounds incredibly helpful and all encompassing like like you said it's something there for everyone depending on where they are it could be a parent worried about a kid it could be a spouse feeling rejected by their partner or it could it could be literally someone reading a book about porn addiction for their friend and yeah. and uh, uh that's such a great title so i will put as as many links as I can fit in the show notes, just to let people know how you know what you're doing and how they could reach out to you. And uh, Josh, I, I really appreciate your time, and I appreciate you taking on this mission. Um, not just because you yourself had to struggle through it for so many years, but because you see the long-term ramifications for future generations, and you want to play a very positive role in creating a better world. And and it's always a pleasure to meet someone who can um, challenge our conventional wisdom, but at the same time, be doing it from a place for, of the common good. So c- c- thank you for what you do. And thank you for being here on Post-Woke.
1: Well, you know, it, it beats moving furniture for a living. <laughs> um, and yeah. uh, thank you. Thank you so much, because like I said, there are still so many people who have so many taboos about this. Um, being able to give me this forum to speak to your audience. I very much appreciate that. We don't know what difference we're going to make, but I've been doing this long enough now that I get messages from people where I heard you on a podcast two years ago, or I bought your first book three years ago, and I just want to let you know that it was the first step towards my change. So That's I wonderful. Know, I do know this kind of stuff absolutely helps, even if we don't find out who the people are so thank you for giving me this the the pleasure is
0: mine and i agree this this type of content is evergreen you know as as somebody who's a big podcast fan myself uh if if a topic interests me i'll sometimes put it into the search bar on my phone and i don't know what podcast is going to come up because it could be one episode on a podcast that's been around for 10 years that that covered that topic so the fact that we did this like you said it's all, it is inevitable that someone is at least one person is going to come across this information at the right time where it can make a fan- huge difference in their life. So thank you again. And, um, I, uh, to the listeners, just check the show notes, all the information you need about Joshua Shea will be in there and Josh, um, really, um, let's stay in touch and thank you for all you do.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Mickey.
0: I'll be back with my story of the week right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here with a few messages before we get back to the show. I'm asking you to become a paid subscriber to Post Woke. To do so, it's very simple. Just go to mickeyz.substack.com. The link is in the show notes. And there, for just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day, you can support what I'm doing and get a steady flow of podcasts, articles, and other content, including perks that are available only two paid subscribers so i thank you in advance for making that commitment it really makes a difference in addition if you'll scroll to scroll through the show notes you'll see that i have a link in there for the project i do to help homeless women in new york city your support is most welcome there's a link in there for a very cool post woke podcast t-shirt to let people know what your favorite podcast is and there's also a link in there for my nft digital art photography if you're interested in non-fungible tokens as a collectible please click that link check it out and maybe maybe buy yourself a collectible work of art so on that note thank you again and most importantly please consider becoming a subscriber at mickeyz.substack.com and now let's get back to the show Before I dig into the story, let me situate you in New York City for those of you maybe not familiar with how the five boroughs work. New York City is made up of five boroughs, Manhattan, Queens, Brooklyn, Bronx, and Staten Island. I was I was born and raised in Queens, still live there as it were, I've lived my entire life. Um, my particular neighborhood undergo has undergone incredible changes and is often called different things, but right now it is un- almost universally called Astoria. And since it's become both hip and profitable, the, under, the umbrella name of Astoria is now used to cover a lot of real estate. When I was younger, the specific area where I grew up was always called Long Island City. It was a working class, urban, industrial setting of asphalt, tenements, factories, and a few old cobblestone streets. High crime, low greenery, ethnically diverse but often divided, except for when we played sports. In such a setting, my friends and I were left to our own devices in terms of having fun. This often meant roaming the streets in small gangs looking for adventure. When we were about 12 or 13, we discovered the now defunct Turf Club Motor Inn. The Turf Club was a standard short stay joint. Some of its first-floor windows faced the street low enough for a juvenile delinquent on his tiptoes. So whenever we'd pass, we'd each peek into a few different windows until we found one matching these criteria. Something was going on, and the curtains were open just enough to see a little of what that something was. On such occasions, we'd whisper, I got action! I got action! At that, all the punks would gather to look. Would there be anything, even shadows, to give us a glimpse at what adults do? Remember, this is long before Internet or even VHS porn, so we were relatively innocent compared to the boys of the same age today. What we did have back then, however, was perhaps more face-to-face patriarchal conditioning. In the pre-Internet and pre-smartphone days of yore, humans interacted differently. Thus, our male elders played a direct role in our programming. For example, when our group talked about the turf club, the older guys would explain the dynamics we partially witnessed. Men who were cheating on their wives and girlfriends used cash-only rooms in a shady part of town. No paper trail and virtually no chance of being seen in a world without today's 24-7 surveillance. As boys, we simply accepted these premises. Men cheat but not any of our fathers, uncles, or brothers, of course. There is an endless supply of sex craving women and wives and girlfriends go along with it to keep the peace and maintain their financial security. The Turf Club was just there to keep things in the shadows to allow for the illusion of trust and honesty. Not surprisingly, the Turf Club became a regular venue for pimps, johns, and prostituted women. I say not surprisingly, because it was common for decades to see prostituted women and girls lining the streets of Astoria or Long Island City each evening at sundown. Less than a block from the five-story walk-up I once called home, there would be many such women and girls. As we became old enough to be outside more than inside, my parents cautioned me and my sister to steer clear of them. They all carry razor blades, my mom warned. By the time I was 12, such a warning only served to spark my curiosity. My friends and I would sometimes jump out and surprise potential Johns when they'd slow down in their cars to talk with a woman. We got your license plate number, we taunt. We're going to tell your wife. Of course, the Turf Club had already taught us how common and, quote unquote, normal infidelity is. Such behavior raised the ire of the prostituted women, but also provoked the sheer rage of nearby pimps. We learned quickly to have an escape plan under such circumstances. As I hit 13, I was out later and later on the streets. Plenty of times when I walked home alone, I'd pass a parked car in which a John and a woman or girl he had bought were completing a transaction. In those cases, yeah, I might take a peek but being out alone on a dark, desolated side street and knowing a pimp was somewhere watching within a half-block distance usually kept me moving. My mom had stopped bothering with her cautions and warnings by the time I was 14, but an unexpected incident made it clear that I was the one gaining a lot more street wisdom than she. I came home one night to find her looking out one of our fourth-floor windows. She called me over to join her. Across the street from our building was a large parking lot. It was full all day with factory workers. At night, not so much. Mom pointed to a car parked in the shadows with a man standing nearby. He must be a lookout, she posited. I think a big drug deal is happening. Needless to say, this captured my attention, so I continued watching with her as another guy emerged from the car and switched places with the lookout in the back seat. Maybe the second man's buying drugs now, Mom wondered aloud. I looked at her in surprise. Ma, I began, there's probably a prostitute in the back seat and those guys are taking turns. My mother's face displayed a blend of shock and disbelief, but eventually the car door opened again. This time a young woman got out. She was wearing hot pants and a tube top as she walked away the best she could in her huge platform heels. Mom looked at me for a few seconds before silently walking into the kitchen. Of course, None of my friends, myself or my friends, ever asked how these girls and women end up being bought and sold on street corners and in parking lots and in back seats. That wasn't part of our hive mind conditioning. But again, this was in a time before pornography became the default setting, before literal children learned about sex from free video clips on their smartphones. My stories almost seem quaint, but imagine how it is in the minds of today's young men who have become porn sick before puberty. So in the name of children all across the world, I implore you, keep your guard up.